Welcome to Antiquity in Gotham, a podcast that explores the reinterpretation, reception, and legacy of antiquity in New York City. Today, we're going to leave Manhattan. We're going to the Bronx, and we're going to go visit one of New York City's greatest forgotten architectural masterpieces, perhaps its most famous forgotten building. And that building is the Gould Memorial Library, which was designed by Stanford White for the University Heights campus of New York University in the late 19th century offered the late 19th century American patron a whole kind of range of options, models, and meanings that could be deployed to create architecture with powerful contemporary cultural resonances. The Pantheon in particular is one such building. At this time, classical culture, classical art had really become a symbol of elite or high culture. And so the use of the Pantheon as a model for the library at New York University's new University Heights campus was an architectural embodiment of the Chancellor, Henry Mitchell McCracken's ambition for New York University to be the city's leader in higher education. So the construction of the Gould Memorial Library and the University Heights campus was rooted in the challenges facing the University of the City of New York, which was renamed New York University in 1896. And for ease, I'm going to refer to the university is NYU. Now, NYU needed to attract more students in the late 19th century. It was not well endowed and needed more financial support from a small group of New York City philanthropists. So the university responded by hiring Henry Mitchell McCracken to be chancellor of the university in 1891. Upon his appointment, McCracken focused on creating a new campus uptown. He thought that a university needed a calm, reflective environment for its students to thrive. Washington Square, where NYU was located, had been increasingly dominated by commercial loft spaces to serve the textile and garment industries. McCracken just didn't think this was really the right environment for students to learn and think. So he identified the Molly Estate, which was situated on a high bluff overlooking the Harlem River, about 10 miles north of Washington Square, as the location for his new University Heights campus. Certain departments, law, pedagogy, and the graduate division were to remain at Washington Square, but everything else moved uptown. Now, for such an ambitious project, you need an architect. And the architect who he selected was Stanford White. He was a principal in McKim, Mead, and White, one of New York City's leading architectural firms, if not one of the most important firms in the United States. The family had ties to the university, and so in 1891, McCracken approached White and asked him to design the building for free uh, out of memory of his father who had attended NYU. So the first building that was erected on the campus was the Hall of Languages, which you can see on the website. But then White focused on designing the library, which was really the heart, the core of any academic institution. He designed it between 1894 and 1895. Construction began in 1897 when McCracken was able to secure funds from Helen Gould Shepherd, who donated the funds to name the library in honor of her father, Jay Gould, the famous robber baron, and the building was completed in 1899. So the Gould Memorial Library is a reconceptualization of the Pantheon, as influenced by earlier European and American interpretations. But the Pantheon was considered to be by many architects, the greatest Roman building ever erected. Originally, it was built by Marcus Agrippa during Augustus's reign, and the purpose of this building is unclear. It's not a typical temple. It's round, and it may have housed statues of the imperial family and certain gods, but we really don't know. The building was rebuilt and repaired several times in antiquity because it was damaged by fire. The most significant reconstructions are those of Domitian, then of Trajan and Hadrian, and the Severans. 
Typically, scholars always thought that it was really a Hadrianic building, uh, which lent it even more credence as an architectural masterpiece because Hadrian was such a fantastic builder. He built a remarkable villa outside of Rome. What was discovered when scholars did an in-depth analysis of the brick stamps was in fact the building that we see today was largely built by Trajan and then finished by Hadrian. And then there were some repairs under the Severans. If you want to read more about this, the show notes have some bibliography about the article you need to read about the brick stamp. But what was so extraordinary about the building was its remarkable interior. It has a lofty dome that was composed around a perfect circle. In other words, if you blew up a balloon that had a diameter of 150 Roman feet, it would fit perfectly inside. And the inside was covered with elaborate opus sectile. That's kind of inlaid marble flooring and wall decoration composed of marble from across the empire. The outside of the building is a little bit more rough and ready as we see it today. Most notably, there's a porch that has a double pediment. And the double pediment is thought by scholars to have resulted from longer columns perhaps not turning up. Reportedly, the pediment was maybe supposed to have been 60 Roman feet tall, but they couldn't get the columns there for some reason or the columns didn't turn up. And so as a result, it's only 50 Roman feet tall. And that continues to be debated, but these academic concerns were not really of interest to architects who were just so impressed by the building. And these architects really saw it as a palmacest, that's something that could be reinterpreted and reunderstood multiple times. And really starting in the 16th century, it was reinterpreted hugely. Probably most famous is the Villa Rotunda or the Villa Capra, which Andrea Palladio designed. You can see a picture of that on the website, but it was then also reinterpreted across Northern Europe. And then in the United States, Thomas Jefferson was the first American to reinterpret the Pantheon for his residence, Monticello, and then also for the Rotunda, the library at the University of Virginia. So when White picked the Pantheon, he did it purposefully. It was a very clear symbol of classical culture and architecture. And it then imbued the whole new campus with a sophisticated air of classical and European culture, as well as architectural and academic prestige. For a university with ambitions like NYU, only a grand rotunda would suit. So the library was designed as a Greek cross plan with a central dome. And from the outside, you approach the building from the east, and the library has a classical style deep porch. It has a double triangular pediment. It's a clear evocation of the Pantheon's porch. And at the top of it was an acroterion. An acroterion is the, a type of decorative piece that's on top at the peak of a pediment or at the apex of a roof line. And here, it seems to be a female figure, perhaps a goddess of some sort, who looks like Minerva or Athena. That would be very, very appropriate considering this was a building of learning. So one walked up to the porch. The porch has a series of inscriptions, which again, you can read on the website. Um, but it was basically this massive porch with Corinthian columns and capital. And you would walk through very heavy, large bronze doors. The bronze doors, in fact, are the memorial to commemorate Stanford White's life. He had been shot dead at point blank range by Harry Thaw, who was the husband of his former mistress, Evelyn Nesbitt. It was commissioned by his friends and family and designed by his son to commemorate him. These doors were executed in a Renaissance style, reminiscent of the great doors of Tuscan churches and baptistries. So it's also important to remember that these buildings are not copies. They're reinterpretations. They're interesting melding of multiple different periods. Now, when you came into the library, one walked up a massive big staircase. And the staircase reportedly, according to the archival material, was modeled after the staircase in the Ducal Palace and the Great Staircase in the Vatican. But as you walked up, you could start to see a glimmering hint of gold 
and green, but you couldn't quite see it, so you're walking up, so one could start to anticipate the remarkable interior. And when one walked in, there was an enormous lofty dome that spanned 70 feet, and it creates an ethereal interior that aimed to inspire students to achieve new heights of learning. It was a stucco dome, and it was gilded with Dutch metal that gives it a golden appearance. And it's composed of six layers of coffered rosettes set in diamonds, which each decreased in size as you came up to the oculus, which was originally composed of Tiffany glass. So you have to remember, all the light that's coming in is being filtered through colored Tiffany glass windows. Unfortunately, the oculus was filled in during the 20th century, and instead there are 16 gym lights affixed to it, which is now the main light source for the rotunda. As you looked up to this glorious dome, at the foot of the dome was a balcony with 16 plaster statues, each of which were based on ancient prototypes and represent four female personifications or ideas that were associated with learning, each of whom is represented four times. And I think I've been able to identify them based on their attributes and comparisons to ancient sculpture, because there's nothing in any of the archival material that identifies them. We seem to have polyhymnia, the muse of sacred poetry, monosomy, or the personification of memory, and the mother of the muses, we also probably have Calliope, the muse of epic poetry, because she's holding a tablet, which was Calliope's attribute. And then lastly, we seem to have Urania, the muse of astronomy, because she's holding a globe in her left hand and in her right hand a compass. So in a sense, we have the whole range of educational arts, from the sciences to poetry, history, um, and memory. Now, these statues are only actually four feet tall, but when you look from the ground, they appear to be life-size. And so kind of like that classical goddess that we saw affixed to the outside of the building, they are a kind of reminder and inspiration for the students below. In a sense, you should look up at these muses and be inspired. At the level of the muses, there was a quotation from the book of Job that was inscribed on the haunch of the dome. If you'd like to read the whole inscription, go take a look at the website. But I'm just going to give you one line of it so you can understand the layout of the space. The first line reads, but where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? What's key is that the word wisdom is right on axis with the main entrance into the reading room. So when you walked up that grand staircase and looked up and saw the dome, the first word you would see is wisdom. So it's a great way that kind of art, sculpture, and architecture and words all work together to create this atmosphere. Now the walls and rest of the space of the library were just as impressive. There are 16 Connemara green marble columns with Corinthian capitals that were gilded with Dutch metal that lined the circular reading room. Now McCracken insisted that they had to have these columns which were imported from Ireland because you couldn't just have cheap plaster columns. He wanted the real thing. And so together you have polished green marble surfaces, a gold dome, inscriptions and capitals. So it is this really interesting interplay of color and light. Now the Connemara marbles have an entablature that they support and a balcony. And the inscription here is also telling. It's from book one of Milton's Paradise Lost. And it says, And chiefly thou, O spirit, that dost prefer before all temples, that upright heart and pure, instruct me, for thou knowest what in me is dark. Illuminate what is low, raise and support. So again, it's this reaffirmation that education is an enlightening thing. Interestingly enough, I said before when you came in, you saw the word wisdom. Right below that, thou, O spirit. So again, you have this emphasis on wisdom and spirit and working in the single space together. Now, there are also, throughout the entire building, as you look up, you see the names of important 
scholars, poets, philosophers, and science from across all cultures. So again, these great academics who range from Confucius to Nebuchadnezzar to Macaulay to Muhammad, that these different names, these people were designed to inspire students to excel. So you have the library here, and this was the reading room. Behind these walls were a series of study rooms. What's kind of interesting here is that again, technology, the structure, the, the metal are hidden away behind the beautiful, beautiful traditional architecture. So like the Pantheon, the interior of the complex was a truly remarkable architectural feat an inspiring place where architecture and decoration exalted students to strive to reach their greatest academic potential and to reach new intellectual heights. The Gould Memorial Library was not an isolated building. Behind it was the Hall of Fame. This is the first Hall of Fame in the United States. It predates the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame. So what's interesting about it is that it is an elegant curvilinear portico and it's over 630 feet in length and it flanked the library and the halls of philosophy and languages that were on both sides of the building. And so it kind of visually linked the buildings together. It was also a kind of clever way to hide the massive retaining wall that was constructed to support the Gould Memorial Library. Within the Hall of Fame were busts of great Americans, the so-called Americans Immortals, as the official guidebook called them. And they hailed from arts, science, industry, agriculture, education, politics, and even the armed forces. So these Americans who were selected had to have been born in the United States and they were nominated according to a specific set of criteria and then were selected by a group of electors. A bust and plaque were then commissioned and erected. Uh, while White designed the Hall of Fame, its ideas seemed to have originated with McCracken. The, and the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame was clearly connected to the European buildings that celebrated the great kind of men of each country or region. So you can think of the galleries of the immortals at the 19th century rooms hall in Munich, where 64 busts of famous individuals sat on bases along the wall in honor of Ludwig I. But McCracken also noted that Westminster Abbey and the Pantheon in Paris were precursors to his Hall of Fame. But it's basically this idea of kind of sumi viri. If we think about all the way back to the Forum Augustus, that these very important men should be honored and celebrated and held up as role models for young students. What's interesting is that the Hall of Fame was not just intended for NYU students, although there were many celebrations, graduations, and kind of performances that used the space, but it was open to the public. And in fact, there were guidebooks and tours on the weekends so that New Yorkers would come to visit the Hall of Fame and in fact see New York University's outstanding campus. By opening the Hall of Fame to the public and encouraging the public to visit, NYU then positions itself as a kind of public arbitrator of history. So here in the Bronx is located the fantastic Gould Memorial and Hall of Fame. Obviously, the Bronx went through a considerable decline in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s. And NYU, which almost went broke, had to sell its campus, which was then bought by CUNY, the campus is now used for Bronx Community College. We know that the Pantheon was still a very important model for other buildings in New York City. So if we go back to Manhattan, to Columbia University, and look at the Lowe Library, you will see that in fact, Charles McKim, who was White's partner, built a very similar building at Columbia University's campus working with Seth Lowe, who was the president of Columbia, who had the same types of ambitions for his university as McCracken did. He then commissioned 
McKim, who had gone to Columbia to build a memorial library in honor of his father as the kind of anchor point of Columbia's campus. So again, you can find some pictures of this on the website. But what we see here is that the Pantheon was an important model for university architecture in the late 19th century. And that in fact, you could have two architects who knew each other closely build very similar buildings for two competing universities in New York City. To me, this testifies to the staying power of the Pantheon as a remarkable building, and also to the power of Roman architecture to be replicated, to be remodeled, to be reinterpreted. That if you wanted to have a great university and the architecture to prove that you were a great university in the late 19th century, you had to look to classical antiquity. Or certainly, classical antiquity was one of the models that you could use to build a remarkable structure. So thank you for joining us this week on Antiquity in Gotham. Please take a look at the website since there is a lot of extra material on the show notes page for this episode. And I hope that you'll join us soon for our next episode. This podcast was supported by a grant from the Classical Association of the Atlantic States. If you want to learn more about that organization, please visit them at caas-cw.org. And if you want to